I love movies. Gosh, I love movies. Here we go. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the Grindhouse Podcast with Dave and not Matt again. Uh, this week, Matt is unfortunately feeling a little under the weather. Uh, we do not believe it is the Rona, so nothing to be concerned about, but he's not feeling ill. Probably has the bubbly guts, could be really messy. So uh, instead of him being on the air, I have rooped in, if you recognize that sweet Aussie voice, <laughs> Miss Ophelia. It's the Coffins and Coffee is, Grindhouse crossover, B. It is, it is. Usually on Grindhouse podcast, Miss um, Ophelia is our male girl. And of course, she's the co-host of Coffins and Coffee. But since Matt is under the weather, uh, I decided to ask her to step up and to fill Matt's very sizable shoes and be the co-host for this episode so that you guys don't have to go through another week of just me talking by myself. I sincerely apologize for anyone who stuck through that hour. I'm coming for so, your brand, Matt. That's right. Now, uh, so we decided, you know, we're, you know, we, Matt and I had a, you know, before last week, in fact, we had a, we had a whole show. And as I mentioned last week, uh, we got hit by Skynet and that entire show just got hit with like, if you think the United States and the world in general has been hit with like plagues and, and murder hornets and, you know, economic recession, like that was basically like our show got hit with every technical issue that could, you could possibly think of. And like so the Greek tragedy, uh, we, comedy of errors, it was terrible. Yeah, it, was, it really was. So we decided that we would, uh, since I had to do the show, by the time we got to re-recording it, I had to do the show by myself. We decided that we would punt that topic that we'd already done a show on to this week. Well, then unfortunately Matt has the bubble guts. So we can't do it this week. So rather than um, do this with you, spring this on to you, uh, we'll just save that topic for a future day because I think it's pretty interesting. And I think we're working on something for next week that will hopefully make up for the fact that you guys had to stick with me solo last week. Uh, so we'll announce that as that comes together. But what does that mean for today? Well, in the essence of a short notice, we decided that Miss Ophelia and I that we would watch a movie together and then we would talk about it because that's what this show is all about. Yeah. Us both being big Nick Cage fans. Hey, yeah. It was a 19, a 2019 film called A Score to Settle. Before we get into now, the actual movie though, just so you course. all know, I didn't, I didn't know this until like a year ago. So if you all have Google Chrome, you can do a Netflix party as a Chrome extension. So you can watch, and it pops up a little chat screen, so you can chat while you're yep, watching right. the movie. It's pretty dope. You can ASL. Yes. Yes. Dave tried to ASL me. Yes. Well, I mean, for most of you guys know that we've been in a long-term relationship for two years now, and that Netflix parties are one of the ways that we have, quote-unquote, quote date nights from halfway across the world. Yeah. Amongst other things we won't talk about. And <laughs> uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, a score to settle was not available. It was available in Australia but was not available in the United States. Yeah, so we had to fuck? sort of rig it. Yeah, we had to rig it. I had to order. I had to rent this film. Uh, you paid money. On, yeah, I mean like four bucks. But, you know, I had to rent okay. this film on Amazon. And um, 
and then we just timed it. So we sort of rigged rigged our own our own Netflix party and sort of texted back and forth as we were watching it, um, which is hilarious. So what? So you selected this film, right? Kind of put you on the spot and asked you to pick it because I was at the time driving and and frankly I wanted you to feel like you were part of this. So what drew you to this film to select? Um, because it's fucking Nicolas Cage. Okay, listen. Me and Nicolas Cage have a bond, okay? A very special relationship. <laughs> very special relationship on a spiritual level. So much so. Even though you've never met. Even though we've never met. He doesn't know. Oh, he knows. In, at a spiritual Like level. deep down in his soul. Deep down in his soul, right? So, it's like so much so that when I did move to L.A., um, last year, year before Couple last, um, yeah. as a farewell to me, uh, my whole workplace plastered uh, my office in pictures of Nicolas Cage. And when I say plastered, I don't mean like they hung up some pictures. I mean, they plastered it. Well, we could put some on your Instagram uh, yeah. as well. So we basically, <laughs> they basically like TP'd your office with Nicolas Cage photos, yeah. right? Oh, yes. And yes. started an Instagram to showcase all of the Nicolas Cage, the hidden Nicolas Cage photos. Okay, so the hidden ones are ones I put around the shop before I even left because I thought it was oh, hilarious. I see, I see, I see. Right? Yeah, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. You caged one another. Yes, and that's what the Instagram page was called. It was called I Got Nicolas Caged. Um, I think after a while they sort of fell off and stopped doing it. But I love Nicolas Cage. So I saw this movie, and as soon as they mentioned that he was an insomniac, escaped from prison, I was like, yes, this is going to be a film that we escaped. need to watch. Uh, he didn't escape. He, he wasn't escaped. Let he, out. He, he, was a, he was let out because he, yeah. Okay, so there, uh, as a warning, spoiler warning, spoiler, spoiler alert, beep, 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 we're going beep, beep, to spoil, beep. yeah, we're going to spoil a lot of this movie, but it's been out for a year, so I guarantee you no one has seen it. Um... So our film starts with, well, let me backtrack before we get into the film. For those of you who are Nick Cage aficionados like Ophelia and I are and Matt as well. We have a framed photo of him in our house. We do. It's in the living room. Uh, (laughs) Nick Cage, sometime back, many years back, decided that he was not going to waste his talents waiting for what Hollywood would consider to be good films. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that Nick Cage would rather be a working actor. So he will essentially work. I don't know what his level of discretion is when it comes to picking film projects, but I know that he's not beyond working on indie projects. Was actually, I know it sounds like I'm mocking, but I'm actually not because I actually think that's really cool because Nick Cage is a dude who's got fuck off money. Even, even if he's had tax issues, like right. I guarantee you Nick Cage to the average person has fuck off money. Right. And I happen to know Roughly what he gets paid for these indie projects, the guy's doing fine. He's doing fi- if, if he's living within his means, he's doing a okay. So he he doesn't have to do these types of films, you know. He can live off uh, royalties from The Rock, or Con Air, or uh, uh, Leaving Las Vegas, face you off. know, adaptation. So what, face off, face off. There's a face. million films. I mean. Yeah, I mean, like, Nick Cage is good to go. As far as I can, I'm concerned, he should be fine. But the fact that he does do these sort of indie films, 
is to me indicative of the fact that he really just loves the craft. And I'll say this because I've watched some of these films and your mileage will vary as to the quality of the film. And we'll get into that, the quality of this film, what Ophelia thought about it and from the perspective of a writer. And um, But Nick seems to always put his A-game into what he's doing. I mean, can you imagine that? You imagine getting an A-list actor like Nicolas Cage to do your, like, you know, sub five million. Well, but Ghost Rider was a big project. And frankly, he was great in Ghost I mean, I mean, it was not a small project. It's not an indie. <laughs> no, it wasn't It was a Marvel indie. film. Okay, it's a Fox property. But, like, he was great in that. He, off, fucking off his rocker. But, like, in a great, absolutely amazing, like, bombastic manner. Nick Cage is the best thing about the Ghost Rider movies. In fact, I think... I'm going to wait for this plane to go overhead. <laughs> Jerk-ass plane. Who's flying? Uh, probably police. Um, there's a... Do you, do you know who the character of Moon Knight is? Moon Knight? Yeah. So is this is cool. Is one of the Sailor so Scouts? I don't know what a Sailor Scout is. Is Sailor that a, like Sailor Moon? Moon? Okay. No. I mean, maybe. <laughs> so Moon Knight is a Marvel character. He's kind of like Marvel's Batman, um, which is also Daredevil. But Moon Knight is a billionaire who goes to Egypt and something, I think he was a, either he was a mercenary or a millionaire or both, but he goes to Egypt on an assignment and he gets double crossed and, uh, an Egyptian God like raises him from the dead from certain death, but also imbues him with power. And so he goes back to America and he uses his millions and billions of dollars and his mercenary skills to, uh, you know, get revenge on the bad guys, right? He becomes a crime fighter. But the, here's the interesting trust. He's got multiple personalities. So he's a <laughs> insane guy. So depending on what day, you might get different moon nights, right? That is tailor-made for Nick Cage to play. Um, like Nick Cage Batman, has to be moonlight. Right the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out, Batman. We want moon night. Right. I want Nick the Cage. moon night rises. What the fuck? Dude, it would be so awesome. So anyways... um. I don't know how I got on the Moon Knight, but Moon Knight's awesome. But my point Nicolas is, Nicholas Cage should play him. Yes, because Nicholas Cage is oh, because you because you brought up Ghost Rider. No, but here's so here's the thing. So Nick Cage works on everything, and I feel like it's a very legitimate claim that he brings his A game to any project he takes on. Right. Regardless of budget, he's there to 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 act, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, look at Mandy. Now brings us, huh? Look at Mandy. That's right. Look at Mandy. Relatively low-budget film. Brought his A-game. Big success, right? Um, we A few weeks back, we had Justin Warren on who worked on a film. He's worked on two films with Nick Cage. And uh, I got to see sort of a, a sneak premiere of that film that he'd worked on. And it's fun. It's I mean, you know, it's got whatever. I don't want to get too deep into that one. But Nick Cage is awesome in it. Yeah. You know, you take your chances, right? Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're bad. But he's got that independent filmmaker spirit, which I always love, right? I never want to lose that because that, to me, is proper cinema. Yeah. You know, it's the it's not it's not with all the money in the world. Anyone can do that and see, succeed or fail. It's when you've got nothing. You've really got to scrap and pull it together, which brings us back to a score to settle. <laughs> now... Um. 
I, again, I don't want to spend this time pointing out all of the flaws of the film, of which there are many. But I do. Uh, so. But 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 Ophelia will. Let me start. Let me just start off positive, okay? As I sort of uh, alluded to in my preamble, Nick Cage is really good in this. He's really good in this. This movie, this movie is like, and I mentioned this to you, and I'm, I was kind of wrong because I was kind of expecting like a third act, big, big shoot 'em up, and never really, never really came. So midway through watching this film, I said that this was like the love child of Over the Top with Sylvester Stallone. What did I say? Fight Club? No. Uh, Over the Top and uh, Pretty Woman. Oh, yes, yes, at the time, yes. So Over the Top meets Pretty Women, or Pretty Woman meets John Wick. Yes. And actually, actually, I'm wrong. I was wrong on that assessment. It's really more Over the Top meets uh, Fight Club meets an ending of a film that was kind of rushed. What did you think about it? Okay. Listen, I love Nicolas Cage. I think he's a fantastic actor. I think he's got great range. Like, he's pretty much, if you put him in something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good. It's going to be watchable. However, <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess the end of the movie 20 minutes in, for one. Oh, totally. Yeah, sure. There's a, there's a twist. And it's not a hugely obvious. Like, it shouldn't have been um, a hugely... It shouldn't have been... That early on, that obvious. Sure. Okay. To the point where we were discussing, is this a continuity issue or is this what we actually think it is or both? Like we couldn't figure out if it was sure. someone did a bad job with continuity or whether actually this is what the ending's going to be, which we won't discuss yet, but. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So let's, let's backtrack. So let's, let's just give, I'll give a brief overview of the plot of this film, right? And then we can get into the details. Again, we're going to spoil the hell out of this. So Nicolas Cage is a former mob enforcer who, it, when the film opens up, we start with a flashback of uh, him and his mob buddies beating up a dude. And uh, Nick Cage is obviously really into baseball. And cut to <laughs> 19 years later, and he's in prison. He's getting out because the doctors tell him that he's got such bad insomnia that he can't be in prison anymore. That he can't be in prison anymore because he's gonna die. So they're gonna let him out to die outside on um, his own terms. First of all, and, what and frankly, he's and frankly, he's been in jail for 19 years, so that's a pretty long amount of time. Now, once he gets out, he is trying to reconnect with his son, whom obviously he hasn't seen most of his life, and that's sort of the over-the-top storyline. Uh, over the top, if you're not familiar, is the Sylvester Stone trying to reconnect with his son via arm wrestling and truck driving. That was a great movie in the 80s. And then uh, sort of underlying or driving, and I use the term lightly, driving this plot forward is this idea that he is not only trying to reconnect with his son for lost time, but he's going to get revenge on the people who let him rot in jail. Right. Which I thought was going to be John Wickish. Or like um, Man on Fire or like uh, any of those old men come back to like, you know, the one yeah. last ride for the old man, you know. Doesn't really ever become that, though. No. And, and mind you, 
we don't find out to the end of the movie why he was even in prison. That's so, true. So yes, what right. did he, what did he, why was he in jail? Why suddenly were they going to give him life? They're like, oh, you know what? 19 years. That's just enough time because you need a nap. You need a nap, old yeah. man. Well, Get out of prison. So it's funny that we keep saying old man. Did you know, little frequently asked question, old man was the original title of the film. And I actually really? think they should have stuck with that. Yeah. Totally think they should have stuck with that. That's why he says it so often. You know, maybe like in the film, he always mentioned, I'm an old man. I'm a crazy old man. I'm a confused old man. Like, I, I like that title. I, I certainly get why the distributor probably changed it to sound more action-packed. But it's not an action-packed movie. We're just going to let you guys know that right now. There's a minimal amount of gunplay. It's very pedestrian. This is, this is a drama. This is not an action film, if that's what you're expecting going into this. Okay, so that's one of my pet hates in film is when you're watching a movie and they continuously use the title of the movie in the dialogue. I hate it. I cannot stand it. Especially when it's like right at the peak, at the peak of the tippy top of the peak at the end of the film and like, you know, the good guys are just about to get their revenge or, or whatever. They're about to overcome their obstacle and then they drop the name of the movie in the dialogue. I can't stand okay. it. I hate it. Hate it. Yes, but I will give I will give one instance where I think that there can be an exception made. Face off. If, well, yes. Actually, that ties into what I'm about to say. Okay. If the name, if the name of the film is a piece of dialogue in the script, it only works if it's said as a one-liner by an actor appropriate enough to deliver it. I.e., um, I think it's. I think it's John Travolta who delivers the face off line, right? Uh, who says it? I, I don't remember. It's Caster Troy. It's Caster Troy, but I don't remember if it's when Nick Cage is playing. It couldn't be because Nick Cage ends up playing the, the, the hero through most of it. I'm, I almost, I'm sure, I'm sure someone's going to correct me that, that it's when John Travolta is playing Caster Troy that he says face off. It has to you know, be. You know, because it's very... Yeah. yeah. So that's so. fine. Or like, for example, I know the movie is called Eraser, not Erased. But if Arnold Schwarzenegger in Eraser, at some pivotal point in like the top of the second act, or even the end of the third act, even at the climax of the film, points his gun at the bad guy and he says, you've been erased. I'm fine with that. He like in that instant, that was He's like, you're terminated. Does he? Where? Is that in Terminator? No, he doesn't. Yeah, he does. I he don't does think say that, that in our movie. He's like, you are terminated. Yeah. Okay, well, my point being, there are exceptions to the rule. But in this instance, uh, so, okay. So that being said, like, in this instance, I feel like they could have absolutely stuck with the, t- the To me, the title Old Man is way more fitting for this film. Uh, and I think it would have better prepared me for what I was about to watch. Because when I see a score to settle... I think like a like a Tony Scott esque Denzel Washington, the old guy comes back for one last you know right. It's the old gunslinger's last ride, right? And this is not that film. This is sort of a drama about an older man who is who is going through PS, PTSD and trauma, and he's trying to write. He's trying to in, in uh, he's trying to resurrect Ghost from his past by getting revenge on the people that he's blaming 
for all of his problems. And, you know, we mentioned that there's a twist. Again, major spoilers. In the film, he recon- like when he gets out of prison in the middle of the night for some reason, because I guess this prison lets inmates out like, either at... And they need to release him yeah, into the at- wild at night. Maybe he's been in solitary confinement and his eyes were not well adjusted for daylight. I don't know. <laughs> but they let him out at night and his son arrives on foot, which was already, which was always weird, right? Like from the darkness arises his son walking towards him and you get to understand that his son's had issues with drugs and they walk apparently to, to a, a taco stand, <laughs> to a food truck and, uh, you know, Nick Cage spends most of the movie trying to reconnect with his son, buying him fancy cars and wristwatches and suits and all this, you know, staying in a nice hotel. And it became very evident to both of us that no other characters talk to the son and that uh, we were in store for a Sixth Sense slash Fight Club-esque twist. Yes. This movie is Fight Club. It's essentially Fight Club. And kind of. I mean, they definitely lifted two. They, I would, I, I haven't done any research on the filmmaker or the writer, but I would guarantee you they're a huge Fincher fan because it's very evident that what they were attempting was a David Fincher movie on a super indie budget, which I guarantee you, at least half of which went to pay Nick Cage's uh, salary. Okay, you know what and, it's like. It's like when sure. you're copying your friend's math homework, but you don't want it to look like you copied. So you leave the answers right, but you just change like the workings like just enough so it doesn't look like you copied. That's what this movie is. Well, listen, I I, I could tell I guess I could tell you what happened. They thought up a twist where a Nick Cage spends a bunch of time with his son. You get to root for them, and then you reveal the kid's dead, been dead the whole time, right? Uh, but the device that they used to to set this whole twist up was a device that we've already seen. This is exactly the twist from Fight Club. And the moment you, in, in, in filmmaking, if you're going to allude to something, you can't do allusion to a twist from a film because we we've seen it. We've all seen that movie and we know it's coming right. And fair play to the actor who played Nick Cage's son. Uh, Do you mind looking that up real quick? Like I don't want to, I want to give this actor some credit. So the actor who plays Nick Cage's son uh, sort of looks like if, if Tom Hardy and uh, Ty Sheridan had a kid, that'd be this guy. And he was quite good. I liked the guy. I actually liked him as an actor. In fact, I would say all the acting was pretty damn good throughout uh, the whole film. Noah Lagrasse. Noah Lagrasse. Props to him and and all the actors. Honestly, like again, a positive of this film was all of the. It was very well cast, and I thought all the actors did a great job. Benjamin Bratt is in it as yeah. well. Um, so. So there's those are the positive, but but you know again it's it's a twist we've seen not only with the sixth sense, but when you set it up with the insomnia, when you have a a piece of um, exposition where a doctor says you're gonna have hallucinations, you're gonna be crazy, you're gonna die. It's like okay, like, I'm watching for that. All right, we're watching for it. We're watching for the hallucination, right? The other thing is, I thought that they could have just easily, I thought they could have just as I, I like the idea that he's dying. You know, I already kind of dug that. Like, I got 
10 days live. I mean, again, I know this is a trope, but like mm-hmm. I got 10 days live. I'm going to make the best of my life. I, I'm because I'm, everything that follows, I'm totally willing to follow along with. Right. You know, he's got he's got a month to live and he's going to go out in a blazing go- glory. He's going to reconnect with his son and he's going to kill the baddie guys and he's going to get laid and all that jazz. Like I, I'm in. I'm in for this ride because he's Nick Cage is an older guy who still looks like he's pretty formidable. And I can believe that he'd spend his last month kicking ass and taking names. Mm. But again, this is where I think the filmmaker was a big Fincher fan. They wanted to do some crazy camera shit and you, you can't do crazy camera shit unless you set up a device. And in this instance, it was the device of the insomnia. Right. You know, they could have given him cancer, but then you take away all the cool sort of blurry effects that came later. And um, to me, it was, Interesting enough, but overall, like it was interesting enough and I can see that the director wants to be sort of seen as a visionary director. Again, guarantee you his, he, like his main influence is Fincher, but I, I just felt like it distracted from the story. See, Whereas I didn't with even, Fincher, like I didn't even feel like some of those camera effects were even effective. Like there's one scene where it's like a close up of this, Again, more spoilers, not that you're really too concerned at this point because you'll figure it out five minutes into the movie, but there's um, a scene where it's like like a headshot of like this hooker and then it turns into his wife's face and then it looks like the fucking cameraman just suddenly developed Parkinson's and just starts shaking the fucking camera like, oh my God, my world's exploding. But I, I get what they were trying to do. Yeah, right. They just that, that, that's, what they, that's what they were trying to do. But no, no, they hit it. No, they you, missed you were, it. You were, well, hold on. Like, you, you, they were so spot on that it didn't have the desired effect that they were hoping for. You nailed it just now when you said it. My, what'd you say? My world is explored, exploding, or whatever you said. Yeah. Okay, that's what they were going for. That's exactly the effect that they were going for. They were going for a camera effect that evoked in you this idea that Nick Cage's world is coming unraveled, and in that way. It came across. The problem is it's so on the nose, you know, it's so on the nose. Yeah. That it's like, it doesn't feel earned. It doesn't feel interesting. Like when, like, again, I'm going to, I'm going to reference Fincher a lot because I can just tell, or at least I suppose that this is a big influencer on him. Like when you go, when you go, like, let's say, uh, have you seen the Zodiac? Yes. You know the scene, there's sort of a famous shot in Zodiac where the camera is very high over top and it's following a car and um, it's a tracking shot from bird's eye view and the car takes a right and instead of the camera just sort of also turning right, it feels like the whole world pivots on an axis at the point where the car... Okay, so that works because it's not particularly on the nose and frankly, you could lose the shot but it feels a bit like we're tracking something via GPS. Yes. And for Fincher, his whole thing, there's an interview with him where he talks about this. Um, he believes the audiences are perverts and we're all voyeurs. And so what he tries to do in his filmmaking is to create this voyeuristic uh, sensibility. Whereas right. we're watching third party omniscient and the camera moves are very disconnected from reality so that, like some like some filmmakers want to make it feel like we're there 
Fincher likes us to feel like we're watching and we're not supposed to be, right? So when Fincher that. does a crazy yeah. camera move, yeah, when he does a ca- crazy camera move or like um, when Tyler Durden, for example, is talking and Edward Norton's character starts to uh, realize that he's he's been uh, hallucinating him in the whole time and the whole camera shakes, it really works in that scenario. Is that the scene but where again, it's like, uh, we are the all singing, all dancing? Yes, yeah, yes. Right. So we are not your fucking khakis. That's what he wanted to go for. Yes. But he looks but like he just had in... Michael J. Fox behind the camera. I'm sorry. And and also we saw that effect in that movie in the mid-90s. So we're, again, it doesn't... And that movie, Fight Club in particular, is so top to bottom, highly stylized intentionally because the whole thing is a satire hmm. that it doesn't feel out of place to have that. Whereas this film is very grounded, not only because of its budget, but because of its premise... Like, it is an intentionally grounded film so that when you have those crazy, like, I'm going crazy moments, they they stick out. And they if they don't work, they really miss. And I thought that this really missed. And I think the other thing that Fight Club did well in that partic- with that particular sort of effect, it was an all-encompassing moment, right? So you had these shonky camera angles, you had, like, of the camera shaking, but you also had that sound you know the sound I'm talking yes. about. And it's like, yes. it feels like your head's going to fucking cave in. Like if you listen right. to that with Be- headphones on, it, it sort of draws it's you this, into that moment. It's this deep bassy yeah, shake. Like, like it, it, it's, it's his voice. Tyler Durden's voice is dictating the shake. It's almost like you're listening to the voice of God. Yeah. Right. And in, yes. And in Sebastian, which is it, it spoilers. If you've read the comic, the sequel and comic to fight club, the character that Ed Norton's character plays is revealed. His real name is revealed to be Sebastian, not Jack, mm-hmm. which people always think his name is because he says, I'm Jack's what a burning asshole or whatever. <laughs> but like <laughs> Sebastian is Tyler Durden is God to Sebastian. He's yeah. what he idolizes as the perfect man, the antithesis of his weak, feeble body. So it all makes sense. Whereas in this one, it's like all the nuance of that effect has been removed and you've you've just landed on the trope of like Nick Cage is crazy, what's real and what's not real. And the problem with all that is is it spoils what I thought was could have been a really interesting twist, albeit still kind of tropish, but it would work within the context of the emotion of the film. Right. And that brings me to the reveal of the actual twist that his son is not alive. His son is a hallucination. Right. You don't feel like Walla already knew as we were watching the movie that that's obviously what was going to happen. Sure. It's all coming to that point. You don't fucking earn it. Like all of a sudden he goes to a cemetery for no reason. For no reason. Just Well, well suddenly... he goes to visit his wife. He goes yeah. to visit his wife, which we know is, okay. is dead. The cut to the transition into that scene felt fucking weird. Like It's awkward. In one sure. moment, oh, my son's dying of an overdose. I've got to drag him out of the crack house. I had to give him CPR. He's almost dead. I'm going to give him a bath now. He's fine. Put him in bed. Give him a feed. Suddenly, bang, cut scene straight into we're sitting in a car at the cemetery. Oh, okay. Oh, all right yep. then. Yeah, it was, it was definitely an awkward tra- transition. I'll give you that for sure. Uh-huh. And then you go to his gravesite, and I'm like, you can see that the to the mother's gravesite, right? Because she's obviously dead, which they explained earlier in the film. But you can see like her name. It's obviously supposed to be a double plot. And I was waiting for 
for him to look away and then it cuts back to her gravestone and I don't know, the, the kid's, kid's name there. reappears or something and he has this mass moment of confusion. He's like, oh my God, what? And suddenly his world actually does crumble around, you know, crumble around him because he realizes, fuck, my son's not actually alive. He's fucking dead. This has been in my mind the whole time. Like I was waiting for that moment. Right. Instead, you pan across, there's the kid's grave, and he's just like, oh, I'm real sorry, like, fucking, I went to prison. I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. It's like, fucking, this should be traumatic as shit. Your kid's well, in, dead. Okay, and in, fair, in fairness to, to Nick Cage's performance, I think that he gave it as much as, as much uh, emotion as he could, given what he was working with from a script perspective. But you're right. right. When, again, to draw the parallels with Fight Club... When it's revealed that Ed Norton's character has been hallucinating Tyler Durden this entire time, that it's a split personality, it is in not only in effect, but in tone and theme, it is earth shattering. Yes. This guy that he loved, maybe romantically, that he idolized definitely, that he grew to hate and resent, has been himself. And yes. that is rightfully completely earth shattering. In this film, which I think the core issue is that this film doesn't know, really know what it wants to be. But in this film, the, the, the story that was most interesting to me was an old man at the end of his days recanting his sins. And the ghost of his son personifies his failures as a husband, as a father, as a man. So I was fine with Ghost Son. I, I again... Probably could have seen it coming a mile away, but I'm okay with that. If it, if the payoff is an emotionally, like, tear jerking, pulling at the right. heartstrings moment, and you're right, it kind of felt like, it felt like it should have been And look, it might have been trite for like, for for uh, a Nick Cage to get to the, the the main baddie, and then he's like, you. Oh, Joey, for all the pain you caused him, and he's like, what are you talking about, Joey? Joey died. I killed him or whatever, right? We would have seen that a million times. Right. And maybe they were trying not to fall into that trap, um, which I respect. I understand it. But you're right. Even if, even if, like, let's say, for example, he goes to get his son. His son is in the drug house. He gets his son out. He barely revives him. He's in the bath. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I, I almost failed you again. I don't know, uh, you know, and he's really like pouring on the self guilt, right? Like, I, I don't know how to protect you. I don't know how to take care of you. Like, let me know what I can do to make this right. And if the kid feebly, weakly says, I just want to see mom one more time, right? Then you right. cut to the grave scene. Then you're like, okay, this is this cathartic moment for the father and the son and the, the wife. And then, you know, you have a moment where Nick Cage talks to his wife's grave and then he, he looks over to look for Joey and Joey's missing and he's confused for a second, you know, and, he, and then and then he sees then he sees the grave next to his wife's grave and he realizes that Joey's been dead also. And then we really need him. This is this is where you could have infused a super yeah. stylized cinematic camera moment. And it just wasn't there. Right. It's it was like, like the wasted moment, on this. It's like the moment where. um uh, in um, uh, say face off, right? Where Nicolas Cage's character meets the the kid, 
who reminds him of his yeah. son that's dead and he's like has that moment where he has that fucking mental break like and yeah. he looks a little bit crazy that's what i wanted i wanted that to be like fuck yeah bang super saiyan nicholas cage he's fucking pissed now he's mad his kid's fucking dead let's go kill some fucking bad guys that's what i wanted and i got dicked it, it it felt milk toast and it and it really which that's a really shame because I feel like it, all the for being a low budget film it was very competently made it overreached from the stylizing standpoint and the script certainly has a lot of flaws in it but I, as a film it was competently put together yeah and I thought that it really could have had some some real poignant moments and it, they just missed on those unfortunately and I think. They were maybe the filmmakers didn't really understand the moments or they were distracted by other things. Like, what did you think from a writer's perspective? Right. Because for, for those of you who maybe don't listen to Coffins and Coffee, we've talked about it a little bit there. Uh, Ophelia is a writer in her own right. She's written at least a couple of scripts now. And as impartially as I possibly can be, I think that they're quite good. And you've got an innate sense of story and character and plot. What did you think about the... Um, the hooker with the heart of gold subplot that kind of was there. I didn't think it was needed. I think. Yeah, I feel the same. I think it was like, I don't know. I, that whole, it just didn't need to be in the film. I just think it would did, well, didn't need to be there. You know, I think, I think ultimately what it suffers from is again, what's the payoff? Right. I think. It, what are we getting from that moment? Like we didn't get, uh, like we it didn't serve for like gratuitous TNA. Uh, there was no there's no titties. There's two sex scenes. Two sex scenes no. no titties. Yeah, so it wasn't for that purpose, right? And uh, if it's if it's to make you feel like maybe he's gonna fall and you love again, and then pull the wool the wool the rug up, out from underneath you, it doesn't really do that either. It could have. It could have. If you wanted to really push the idea that he's really, really desperate and delusional, they have this. So they have in the film, he, he has a he, he has an encounter with a prostitute and, you know, it becomes pretty woman. He pays her for the night. And she apparently, even though Nick Cage looks like he's in a coma, she's had the best sex of her life and they have a car ride and it's romantic. And he starts to see his ex-wife in her eyes and, um, and then it sort of ends with this idea that it's going to go on to become some sort of romantic endeavor, right? And then he calls her again for a date, and it's here's the twist. Uh, it's not her. She wants nothing to do with him, and he kind of spooked her out, right? That moment could have worked. I would have been fine with that. They didn't do enough with it, right? They didn't do enough. Maybe they, like it would have been really appropriate if they did like a little bit of a um, – a flashback to the end of their date, and you realize from her perspective that this date did not go nearly as good as he imagined it to be. Right. Almost a bit like Joker. Um, no, almost like fucking Fight Club, right? Where at the end they do the cutscene back to where he's like fucking having a drink by yep. himself in the gutter with the beer, like when he's doing all this stuff like yeah, on his own. This guy fucking wanted to suck Fight Club's dick. And well, but like, even but like, I don't tip. think the. I don't. <laughs> I don't think that the character, the, the character of, frightened. <laughs> no. Well, see, I don't think the character of Simone was meant to be another Tyler Durden character. I don't even think she was meant to be a Marla Singer character. I think what she was meant to be was um, 
uh, I don't remember the character's name now, but the the neighbor in Joker, right? right. Whereas yeah. in Joker, mm-hmm. Arthur Fleck imagines he's had this amazing date with this girl. Although I guess in Joker, he never does have a date with her, right? That's all in his head. But he imagines some kind of date with her, and it turns out to be not true. She's just a girl, lady that lives down the hall. If if they did that, which would be good also because it would not only set up the reveal that the son was also imaginary, but it would maybe throw you off the scent a little bit. Mm. If they re- if they did a flashback to reveal that she perceived the date completely different, not that she was imaginary, but just that sh- her perspective on the date was totally different. He's this fucking weirdo. He's staring at her all. And, and by the way, Nick Cage would have killed that scene. Yes. Right? Can you imagine like you see that sex scene from her perspective and he looks like a fucking deranged nutcase like he would have killed it right and then and then he reveals she wants nothing to do with him he's just a crazy old man like another failure right really piled on the failure the uh the kick the dog right and in, in screenwriting we, we often refer to save the cat to set up your protagonist yes. conversely you can also kick the dog right you make the lead character so pathetic that the audience doesn't can't help but but root for them right and like uh joker but does there's that a, amazingly like joker perfect example but they ruin that by, or unravel that, I guess is a better way to say it. They unravel that tension by another follow-up scene where he shows up at her place and she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I just wasn't feeling it. And he's like, no, I'm sorry. It just deflates the whole, yeah. all the tension built up. And you're right. Because of that, because of those subsequent scenes after their date, deflates all the tension built up there, you could take it out because he's no further long changed right. As a result of it. So, two things bothered me about that scene. Once, one, this bitch has got like a nine-year-old kid and he's in a fucking pram. He's in a fucking pram. Oh. You're right? going to have to explain that for our U.S. listeners. A, um, a, a stroller? Stroller. A stroller, right. So, this fucking lazy little shit turd eight-year-old kid is in a fucking pram, right? Make the kid walk. Okay, yeah. Why is he in a pram? I mean, he might... He might not have been that old. He might have just been a tall kid. No. Or maybe they just shot him big. he was a big boy. He'd been drinking his okay. milk. He's a big kid, right? Fair enough. Two, that whole scene, I felt, should have been, or what they may have meant that scene to be, is his redemption, right? So, through this movie, he's got all this money, right? He's... In his mind, mm-hmm. spending it all on his son to bond with his son and stuff, which his son's obviously dead, so blah, blah, blah. So she, he gives it to this young, beautiful hooker oh, with a totally. child, right? Yeah, so that to avoid, yes. To right. help her get out of it so that she can spend time with her son and not make the mistakes that he made. Yeah, they totally could have done that, like, 100%. It feels like it should have been the redemption because he gives her this money. And he's like, oh, there's $100,000 in there. She's like, what? Oh, my God. Fucking... Yeah. Yeah, Why? you're right. Missed opportunities. Like a lot of missed opportunities with that subplot. What did you? Here's another thing that I was just thinking of: the ending. Uh, at the end of the film, it's revealed that Benjamin Bratt, who seemingly was one of the buddies he used to run with back in his criminal days, but who has seemingly turned over a new leaf, he um, he's at his daughter's wedding, and it's revealed that it is that he was the guy who ordered the hit on his son. Back in the day, because his son was a junkie, he was threatening to blow up the whole operation, right? Right, the double double. And cross. um, yeah, and instead of killing him, he decides to give him mercy. Get uh, that he fucked. He, Get well, fucked. He, well, he, well, hold on. There's, there's, it's, it's attempted to be set up 
by the ghost of his son asking him to leave the past behind, to let it go, right? And if that's the theme, if that is the theme of this film, letting go of your hate, right? Then, Then the ending, to some degree, makes sense. They pushed out. Here's the problem. But here's the problem. The problem is when you reveal that Joey, his dead son, is a ghost, it essentially is Nick Cage telling Nick Cage to let it go. And why? Where is that coming from? Dude. Did his kid tell him to let it go? Was it a, a was it a letter that his wife wrote him while he was in prison or his son wrote him before he died Did while he was in prison? Did you really like the Frozen is, soundtrack? Maybe. Maybe that's all they had in prison to watch. <laughs> Just Frozen on repeat every day. Look, like again, that is a that is a theme that is really intriguing. If you if you don't think of this film as an action film, which they totally mislead you to believe, but instead it's a drama about a man looking for redemption, right? To forgive himself, but while at the same time taking responsibility for the things that have caused him wrong, right? Mm. I, I'm I'm on board with those things, and I, again, I think you've got the cast for it, but it has to be set up by something, and. You can't set it up with a ghost because the ghost is in his own head. And so where is that thought coming from? Right. It, you know what I'm saying? Like he's, who is he honoring? He's imagining that his son, whom he didn't see for 19 years, is saying that. Because his son in the film looks to be like, what, in his mid-20s? At so least, his son, yeah. Last time he saw, yeah, like last time he saw his son, his son was like, what, five, six? Why yeah. would he imagine his son telling him that? You know, why not his wife? Why you know what I'm saying? Like I don't know where this comes from. This idea of redemption comes from why he's choosing to do this because he's hell bent on getting revenge throughout the film. So why all of a sudden this change of heart? I don't know. And I think I think a lot of this stuff comes back to a conversation that we were having, um, which was you can never just use. Like, if you've got a cool idea for a scene or a cool idea for a plot twist, you can't base a whole movie around that. And I kind of feel like that's sort of what's happened here. Because there's some cool bits. Like, this is pretty cool imagery. This is pretty cool imagery. This is pretty cool imagery. It doesn't mix. Like, it, it doesn't, like, mix together and make one cohesive, like, unit. It just It just doesn't work for me. Like, you got the cool scene in the butcher shop. Where, yeah, which I think yeah. could have actually been made cooler. You've got a butcher sure, shop with meat yeah. hooks and you don't hang a motherfucker up on those hooks. You're crazy. Well, but, but he well, did steal some film. sausage. That's true. At the end of the day, you're right. It, this film, I don't, I wouldn't say that this is a bad film and I don't feel like I was gypped and I don't feel like it was poorly made and I don't feel like I was spent, like I spent four bucks on it. I don't feel like that was a waste of money. I got to see some pretty damn good performances. And I don't know, again, who this young man was who played Nick Cage's son. But, like, dude's got some real chops. He's only you know, five I'd like films. to see him on some more stuff. Yeah, he's a young guy. And he's fucking good. And he's good looking. And guy could totally be, you know, something. So, from that perspective, and maybe the filmmaker, you know, he's pretty young, too. I think it's only this was only, like, his second film. Again, it was very competently put together, you know. Yeah. But... In the end, and I, I think that why this is why it's so appropriate to talk about this with you, who, who is a writer, um, who has spent time on sets, 
who spends every day crafting stories, this this comes down to the script. And it came down to the script not really knowing what it was and, and really missing nuances. Yeah. This is where a producer like me comes in as an objective third party, reads this, and asks the questions that I as the audience will be asking when I watch it and hopefully makes the correct adjustments because it's all there. It's all there. Like you just had to shoot things a little bit differently, tweak things a little bit here, right. rearrange a few things. But the but the core of the film does not need to be trashed. No. It just needed I would probably remove the the hallucination thing altogether. I just didn't think you needed it. Give him cancer or you know what? Even if you give him even if you give him insomnia as the reason that he's going to die, like go watch Chris Nolan's Insomniac for a, a awesome way to you know portray insomnia. Right. That to me the tone of Insomniac would have more closely fit the tone of this film than I think Fight Club does, which I think is where they drew their inference. I could be wrong, but that's just my gut instinct. I just think I think you could have played on him being crazy. Give the motherfucker like three personalities. One of the personalities We're going to save that for Moon Knight. Like, save one of the personalities and make it his son. He is so traumatized by the bullshit that happened that one of his personalities is his kid. But, like, he doesn't fucking, like, know that. Or he's, like, an imaginary friend. Some fucking bullshit. Like, play on the fact that he's nuts. I would have preferred that. Sure. I mean, look, again, you got to know what you're writing. Exactly. And I feel like like this film never really found its voice. Or there was a conflict. And, look... In fairness to the filmmaker, uh, it's very possible that some producer like me, uh, but not me, stepped in and said, we got to make it more action-y. We got to make it more of this. We got to, you know, distributor comes in and decides to tell them to add this shit that doesn't quite work. And we've been on those sets, right? We know yes. we know what happens when when the writer has an idea of what the film is, when the director has an f- idea of what the film is, when the producer has an idea of what the film is, and when the distributors have an idea of what the film is, and none of those things match. You and I worked on a film not that long ago that was exactly that. Yes. And so I don't want to put I want I don't want to harp all this on the filmmakers because again I don't think it's a bad movie. I just think it's a movie that I hope the filmmakers learn from, and they see kind of where they missed the mark. Uh, I don't think they missed the mark by that far, and I don't think that they're beyond being able to correct on their next go around. But it did miss the mark in a lot of areas, and, yeah. and that's really unfortunate because. The pieces were there and the performances were there and, and Nick Cage is awesome and man what a what a great opportunity it is to work with a, a, a caliber actor like like Nick Cage and unfortunately just come short. Right. I did feel like like the script probably could have used um one or two more passes. Um it's like probably. you know, it's it's one of those things that I've learnt as a writer is that you you don't want to directly explain things. To the audience, That's right. right? So you don't want to have to be like, oh, by the way, this happened because this. It's really little things I found that that sort of happened in this movie. Like, just as an example, 10 minutes into the movie, you see the kid. He gets out of prison at nighttime for whatever the fuck reason. Um, and you see his son walking up the dark road towards him. Now, we both were like, why the fuck didn't he drive? Why didn't and he why drive? why is he being released at night? And why is he being released at night, right? And then immediately the kid's like, in case you're wondering, I had to sell the car. 
It's like, oh. I, I actually didn't mind. Honestly, I didn't mind that. I like that they I, I didn't mind that because. It, but if they, maybe they yeah, had and a conversation. Also, like, this is so far. Like, why did you fucking walk here? I could have gone home on my own. Yeah, well, I had to sell the car, didn't I? Because X, Y, and Z. That, uh, listen, maybe. I, I don't think. I didn't mind it. Only because. At least it, they explained it. It, it did <laughs> cast. Well, because because it casts some doubt as to whether or not he sold the car because it was for bills or it was because of drugs, right? Which is sort of a theme that, but again, it's a theme that never gets followed up on. So that's why it's kind of like when you trace it backwards, it feels lackluster because, you know, through it, he suspects that Ghost Joey is on drugs still, even though Ghost Joey says he's not on drugs. But that never really leads anywhere except that right. he saves him from a, so it doesn't pay off. Again, there's no payoff. Because I just don't think this film knew what it was. I feel like one, someone in this process, someone wanted to make a heartfelt film about a father and son. Someone wanted to make a revenge film. Someone wanted to make a old cowboy's last ride film. And they kind of shoved all three themes together. And each of the themes never coalesced into one narrative that I could strongly care about and get behind. I think that was that was actually going to be my next point and that I was going to make about the script. It feels like the script is a compromise. It's could be. It's a compromise between people that had conflicting ideas about what they wanted this film to be and it's like cool. Well, let's settle on this because we got to get it done. It, it very well it very well could have been that. It's obviously it's very hard to say. But um so here on the Grindhouse, we like to give Tusk ratings. You know, one zero being terrible, five being amazing. Where, what, how many tusks do you give this film? Oh, I really love Nicolas Cage, but you know, if we're saying like five tusks is like the pinnacle of fucking film, I'm gonna have to give this like a two. <laughs> like, if we're saying five is like the best you could possibly get. Then yeah, two from me. Okay, I I'm gonna be a little bit more generous to this film. I'm gonna give it a two point five, because it's totally watchable, even if you feel like it's kind of like a, a limp hand job. It's <laughs> it's it's totally watchable. It wasn't completely unpleasurable. I got something out of it. I didn't feel like I was gypped off. I wish the best for the filmmakers to sort of grow from this experience, but uh, it's not great. It's probably one of the better one of Nick Cage's sort of direct-to-DVD movies. But uh, it's it's not particularly awesome. So two and a half tusks for me. I, I don't know that I can necessarily recommend people watching it. But if you want to watch it from the perspective of, um, oh, I don't know. I'm fucking bored. Film. <laughs> no, just, I mean, if, if you want to watch it from a perspective of like, I want to watch a film that doesn't work in the best way possible, you know? So that I can sort of break down and see what doesn't work. Really explore why I like or don't like something. Right. This is probably a good movie. Because mm-hmm. it's not going to be offensive. It's not like The Room. You know, or like Veronica. The Room's fucking which great. Is like, okay. It's, it's terrible though. <laughs> like you can't glean much from The Room. Because it's so, it's such a complete total failure in filmmaking, right? I learned how Whereas not to write this, by watching The Room. I mean, you, you can learn how not to do anything that that movie does. <laughs> Right. Whereas this film, you can watch it and you can be like, oh, if they just done this, if they just done that. And I think that's pretty invaluable information. So for those of you who are going the Tarantino route, the Robert Rodriguez, well, Robert Rodriguez went to film school. So the Tarantino route, not going to film school and trying to get your education by watching movies, uh, which is how I came up. 
then I definitely think um, definitely think this is a film worth watching from that perspective. And the performance is pretty awesome. And if you're just like a Nick Cage collector, then it's probably fine to add to your collection as well. So this is the point in the show where I would normally kick it to you to answer audience questions. But you're already here. So why don't we cue the music and I'll read the questions to you. Okay. Do a little, we'll, do a little, we'll do a little power reversal. How about that? Ooh, you can be the top of the show. A bit of a switch. Okay. Questions from the crypt. Okay. Our first question comes from Jason Matthews. What lasting impact will COVID have on the film production, if any? What the impact do I think it will have on film production? I don't know. Yes. I think we're going to see, I, I give it six months to a year. I think we're going to see some fucking good movies come out. I've just got this feeling that you've got a lot of people. They're sitting at home. They've got nothing to do. They're going to write. And you've got writers that are going to write. That's all they're going to be doing during this lockdown, right? They've actually got time to sit down and devote 100% of the time to their craft because they don't have any other distractions. There is nothing else to do, right? They're put under pressure. It's a traumatic time. Like, who knows? That's possible. That's po- I hope so. I mean, that's certainly the, the, uh, the most positive outlook on things. I think that, um, I think that the long-lasting impact beyond just the immediate right? right like you're right there might be some real gems that come out of this last three or four months however long this lasts but i think that um i think the longer issue is that people are going to try to make films faster and smaller yes, yes. yeah which like right. like like i've seen i've seen several articles that outline how big studios are going to rearrange stuff you know and like i even saw the writer who wrote uh one of my favorite films blade runner 2049 suggest you know moving to french hours and cutting your hours down and look all those things are fine but none of those are going to work on the indie level because we don't have those kind of resources no and so what i imagine is that films which are already being like every film every film budget i do if i do a budget for a film or a schedule for a film that's over 15 days i'm bomba- like bombazzled bamboozled what's that bamboozled word? bombastic i'm gobsmacked i'm gobsmacked <laughs> Bewildered. See, that's how much. That's how bewildered I am when I see. Just the thought I actually of it. get to make a schedule. Yeah, because budgets are getting smaller, mm. uh, and they have been for such a long time. So, uh, I think you're going to see films get try to be made. You know, for film for pro- production companies to try to make films in a shorter amount of time to to reduce the risk of a film being shut down mid shoot, like which happened to me and which mm-hmm. happened to a lot of other films. You know, there was a um, there was an article about Tyler Perry. Did you know that dude shoots a whole season in like two weeks? What? Yeah, he shoots like eighteen pages a day or what something, twenty fuck? pages a day. But you know, he controls every aspect of production. It's all on his lot. It's all like so. What they've been talking about doing is sequestering crew. So like, if you're working on right. a film project, they would sequester you. You're only around people whom you work with. You shoot for whatever, and then you. You go home or they take a break and then they do it all over again. So I think you could see some of that. Maybe. Again, would that trickle down to the, the indie level? I don't know. But I definitely think you're going to try to see films be made faster and more efficiently, maybe to a breaking point, which I guess it's good that there are people like me who know to make things cheap, fast, and good. So 
I should be doing fine. I wonder if there's going to be any impact on using um, some of those other tax break states because they are a lot of states that have had like pretty hefty outbreaks with this stuff too. So I don't know how their industries are going to be affected over at least the next year. Like people aren't going to be wanting to to go to those places like Georgia and stuff like that. They'll hit pretty decently hard. Yeah, I don't want to travel. No, you know, no. I might have to go back. To, I might have to go back to Georgia to finish the Netflix series that I was doing. And I don't honestly, I don't really want to. Right. Not till I know that things are in a good spot. You know, will I if I have to? I might. It's not really my it's not really something I'm looking forward to. So uh, hard to say. It really is hard to say. I guess we'll all just have to hope for the best and hope that as a community, we can come together and find the most safe and efficient ways to continue making films for people to enjoy. Question number two from our friend Judas Walko. <laughs> In light of Universal AMC's battle over Trolls 2, do you think the majors will thumb their nose to brick and mortar theaters forever, essentially shutting them down? Have you heard about this? Um, I'm I, The most I took away from that was that they're making a second fucking Trolls movie. So. Oh, it's already out. <laughs> what? <laughs> So, okay, so I'll give you the backstory for this for people who don't know and for you. So, Trolls 2 was made and it is being released. A lot, you know, like right now, a lot of the distributors have pushed their releases to next year, to later in the fall, right. or whatever it may be, right? Um, with the idea that by pushing it, they will wait for theaters to be open again. Yes, okay, yep. Univer- okay, so Universal, who has produced Trolls 2, has opted not to do that. They're just going to release it day and date um, via home, I guess, video on demand. And AMC, the big movie chain, has thrown a shit fit because they are already feeling the pressure of more and more releases going digital. And so to them, Universal daring to release their film digitally versus waiting till the theaters are open is to quote Jude, thumbing their nose at them. And so they have declared that AMC theaters would no longer carry any universal film. Wow. So it's a big any universal film right at now. all. Well, let's see what happens when the next Fast and Furious movie comes out. Yeah, oh God, but, please no. I mean, that's a pretty big... I mean, it's a pretty big deal. And I think that shows you, like, <laughs> how much money some of these film companies are having. Because, like, if you look at... Trolls, the first Trolls movie, right? So rather than push that so it can get a later box office release date, they've foregoed it to be released online first. The first Trolls film with the box, of- box office made $347 million for fucking Trolls, okay? How much was the, how much was the budget? $125. Uh, so a little, bit of, a little bit of inside baseball. When if, so the way the especially domestically, the way that it works is that theaters take half of a movie's box office, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're telling me that the movie made 300 plus million and it was made for, you know, a little bit over a million, you know, between a million and a million five, the film made money, but it didn't do gangbusters. But still. Maybe it made more money in merchandise, but it, it made money and it necessitated a sequel. Will it make you know, again, if the sequel is anywhere near the original, let's say it's what you said, 125 was the budget? Yes. Okay. So here's the upside. If they release it on digital, 
Now, I don't know what cut the digital companies take. Right. I don't think it's half, but I don't know that. They may not have to make quite as much money to break even as they would with a theatrical release. Right. Um, but honestly, this is my perspective. I love cinema and I love theaters and I love movie, the movie going experience. And I think that um, the problem is, is that the big chains, the Regals and the AMC and uh, Cinemark, they have gotten very lazy and very complacent with their belief that they're owed first release exclusivity. And for those people who go to the movie theaters that aren't like an Alamo draft house or even Arclight, you know that like half the time people are on their fucking phone. Oh my God. The floors are sticky. The food is ridiculously overpriced. You know, there's people fucking talking. You tell the managers, they don't do anything. The moving going experience in those kind of chains has really diminished. And I'm not saying it's every showing. I'm not saying it's every movie, but it's frequently enough that I don't frequent them anymore. Like I have to be like when I go visit you in Brisbane, we might go to one of those because it's kind of you guys have less of the smaller theater chains. Right. Right. But but out here in Los Angeles, I don't ever go to those things. I, I hate going like I think it's an AMC that's over at the uh, the mall. What's that mall? Outdoor mall. Whatever. I hate him. Right. It just it's a bad experience. Yeah. And so I hope what this does is it forces them to clean up their act that they are not guaranteed. Yeah first releases that if you want people to go see a film in your establishment that you make that experience worth the drive and the ticket price and the popcorn and the parking and the babysitters and every other fucking thing that people have to pay for because a movie going experience for two people is between 30 and 50 bucks yeah easily so at least make it at least and that's assuming they don't have a kid right right you know you're paying 16 to 18 bucks a ticket that's, you know, that's sale on the low side, 32 bucks. You got to pay four bucks for parking. That's 36 bucks, right? You got to pay if, if, you, if you buy it. I mean, I guess you could not buy food, but you, if you buy any food, you're up at 50 or more. So make the experience better. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I think that um, I, I will quote one of my favorite quotes from a Oscar worthy movie, Rocky Four, and I'll paraphrase it. If theaters die, they die. The strong will survive in this instance. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think this could as well damage like some of the companies as well. Because when you think about it, a lot of these movies, let's say, for example, I mean, Trolls is, is one of them, obviously. But like, let's say, for example, Frozen. That movie yep, is a okay. giant fucking advertisement to sell merch, to sell toys. To- true. That's right? true. So if you're releasing something digital only, they're going to feel that. Like, they're going to feel that. You know, I wonder how much money they made on Frozen fucking merchandise. You can buy Frozen ice skates. Know. You can buy Frozen but, but, clothing. Like, But right now, but see, here's the thing, though. This is right. I, I, I do agree to some degree for smaller films, but I disagree with big films like Frozen because they're not going to spend less P&A, print and advertisement. Yeah, right. So you're still going to see frozen all over the fucking place right let's just say frozen three so that means little girls and little boys who love frozen are still going to see the same advertisements all over the place except now when they go and actually think about this you know if you got like a like a i don't know what's the average age of a frozen fan like four right yeah probably five or six and you want to take like I, i don't have kids 
my sister's got a kid. Taking your little toddler to the movies is, is a chore, right? Any of our listeners who have kids, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Right. And if you had the option as a parent to satisfy your little munchkin seeing Frozen 3 at home or at the theater, yeah. which would you do? I think you'll watch that movie. Not only will you watch that movie once, but you're far more likely to watch Like a lot of these parents watch this film more than once anyway. But dude, isn't it way easier to watch this film at home 15 times than at a theater? Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry to all the parents so when I Frozen think, 2 comes out. <laughs> listen, I'm just saying I think the strong will survive on this one. And if theaters don't get with the times, then all they're doing is speeding up their inevitable demise anyway. Yeah. Oh, well, it's going to change, I think. We'll see. We'll see. We will see. Question number three. From our friend from the regrettable century, Mr. Jason Nettick. What's a film that you really grow to appreciate despite completely disliking it at first? Like a film that has moved from bad to good, worthless to valuable, or devoid of meaning to meaningful. Oh, man. So a, f- a film that I originally did not like, but now I'm like, okay, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. God. It would have to be some like C-grade garbage that I've seen. It would have to be. I'll let, I'll let you feel this one first because I know you. You're. I'll know you'll have one off the bat. I can guarantee it. Yeah, I was struggling with this one a little bit, but you know what it is, and this is a dumb movie, but like Zoolander. <laughs> Zoolander is a film that I saw, and I thought this is so fucking dumb. This is such a dumb film, and then it came out on video, and I watched it with a buddy of mine, Charlie, and he dug the film, and I was like, this film is pretty funny, I guess. And then I watched it again, and it started to be really quotable. And then I find myself many, many years later. When did that film come out anyway? Like 15 years ago, 20 years ago? I find myself quoting that film on a near, if not a daily, certainly a weekly. uh, uh, um, I find myself quoting that film on a, if not daily, weekly basis. How often you know, do you use the, from, what is this, a blank for ants? It needs to be at least three times bigger. All the that time. or Earth to Matilda. I don't literally mean Earth to Matilda. <laughs> it's not Green Alien. Like, I mean, like I start thinking about that movie. You should listen to Billy Zane. He's your friend. He's trying to help you out. <laughs> oh, no. You should listen to Billy Zane. He's a cool guy. He's trying to help you out. Han Solo. I mean, I could go on and on and on. That movie is so stupid. Yeah, Blue Still. Not being able to turn left. Like, there's a. a I quoted that last week. Hansel. Last week. Hansel. He's. Yeah, Hansel. He's so hot right now. Yes. Hansel. Yeah, last week. The network that we broadcasted from last week was the Han Solo, which is exactly from Zoolander. So, uh, that movie's still really stupid. Guess how long ago that came out? It has. Just to put it, huh? just to show effective, uh, like how effective some of that shit is. 2001. 2001, 19 years ago. Yeah, nailed it. Wow. It, it, had, it had to been that long. That's most of my own. So, yeah, life that's ago. a movie. Yeah, that's a movie that I feel like the very first time I saw it, I thought, what the hell is this garbage? This sucks. And it just got better and better and better with every viewing. It, keeping in, in the same vein of comedy, Step Brothers is that movie for me. When I saw it for the... F- oh, you didn't like it at first? It's not that I didn't like it. So I was like, oh, yeah, it's a Will Ferrell movie. Sick. 
But, like, the more I watch it, the fucking funnier it is. Like, every time I watch it, I nearly piss myself. It is so good. Will Farrell is just... He's visually funny, which I think is something that's missing from film now. Yes, desperately. Right? So... Especially in comedy. Especially in comedy. Like, he just... He could, like, make you feel laughter just by looking at the camera. Like, just his face. Like, he's just fucking funny. Yeah. Him, John C. Riley as well, is really good for it as well. Because he's got a very unique face. But yeah, he could, like, furrow a brow and, like... <laughs> just even thinking about it is making me laugh. Like... Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. That's one of the, I saw that movie on your recommendation. And I was like, that's fun. But you're right. It's Watch one of those it movies that definitely becomes more memorable as it goes and you start to quote. It's the same thing with Zoolander. Yeah. I think it's easier with comedy because sometimes you, you got to be the, in the right headspace to really appreciate how the stupidity of it. And then once you are, it's it's infectious. Yeah. I mean, um, so those would be so Zoolander and Step Brothers. Yeah. I mean, if you were to go the other way and you want to talk something, you want to talk something a little bit more scary. And it's actually become one of my favorite horror movies now is Return of the Living Dead 3. It's a great film. That's a great film. You should watch I mean, that. If you want to see some cool old school special effects, it, it's got titties, it's got zombies, everything. It's got... Yeah, yeah. a lot of people don't know, but Miss Ophelia is basically Joe Bob Briggs with Darcy's tits. What? <laughs> How Moving about on. Joe Bob Briggs? So, from Damon, who runs the Slasher app, which I recommend you guys all yes. checking out. It's a place for... People in the horror community to join and talk about horror movies and do dating and writing and recommendations for other cool horror stuff like this podcast. And Damon asked, what is your favorite tissue that is called Kleenex? Old socks. I'm going to go with Kleenex. Old socks. <laughs> We're not talking about. I'm going to bleep myself out on that one. Okay. Old socks. And I'm just going to go with Kleenex. Kleenex is probably where it's at. I don't know. I'm not a big tissue guy. No, who owns tissues? Are you eighty? Like, no people. Some people do. I I'm just like a toilet paper guy. I'm like a heathen. Yep. Philistine. Like you know how you see like old ladies all have fucking tissue boxes, and you know why they have them in their car on the rear parcel shelf? What the fuck? Sorry, I'm driving. Oh, my nose is a bit runny. Better reach onto the rear parcel shelf and grab a tissue. What the dickens? Well, that explains her driving so much. My grandma Mm. used to keep it in her purse, and also toothpicks and bra. In a bra? In your bra. It's where you keep tissues when you're old lady. Oh, no, 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 no. Or up your sleeve. No, my grandma used to keep... No, nah, she kept it in her purse along with her... She would reuse her medicine bottles but for toothpicks. So our answer, Damon, is um, Kleenex and dirty old cum rag socks. No, just clean socks is fine. So our next question comes from Kutamara. Kutamara. Also from the Slasher app. Uh, she asks... She asked. Have you ever heard? Yeah, she asked. Have you ever heard of Spaghetti Man? Spaghetti Man. Yes. The flying spaghetti monster. No, I didn't know about this either. Am I going to Google so, this and be like, "Why the fuck have you done this? I can't believe you've done this." No, I'll tell you what. I'll, uh, she kind of answered the question for me because I didn't know it. So I'll, I will. We'll do a little bit of a role reversal here, in which the the person asking informs us so uh-huh. an apathetic man 
becomes a superhero with the power of spaghetti after his microwave malfunctions. Masks, masking his identity with a brown, yeah, with a brown paper bag, he sets off to fight crime as long as he's paid for his heroics. I mean, I didn't know this movie. This looks right up there with Ninjus, Nin Jesus and Veloso Pastor. Yes! And uh, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Okay. All day long. So I'm going to watch this later because I like fucking weird films. And, and like, to that effect, like, I really like weird Japanese films because a lot of them have this sort of theme, like something outrageously right. stupid. Like, Spaghetti. Um, there is one. Oh, what was it called? So there's a Japanese film from 2013 called Hentai Kamen. <laughs> Hentai Kamen what? Kamen. Right? Okay. So bear with me. It's about a guy who develops uh, superpowers by putting used schoolgirls' panties over his face. Sounds like a good time. Right. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's. I'm going to go ahead and guess that whoever wrote that fucking loves Japanese cinema. <laughs> because it's so stupid. I hope so. <laughs> well, so this is why we do this, because this is... It's not just about us answering questions for our community. It's our community answering questions for us. What is Spaghetti Man? A film worth seeing. So I think you should watch that film. You should rate it. And then we'll have you back on the show. And you could talk about your thoughts yes, on it. Yes, I think that's entirely possible and probable. Okay, so this is going to be our last question. Okay. And this comes from our friend Morgan an extremely talented post-production sound engineer and uh, all-around good Brit. And he asks, Nick Cage is a brilliant actor who has managed to portray wildly different characters without ever losing his Nick Cage-ness. Yes. Similar to how Nick or Jack Nicholson or Al Pacino or Gwyneth Paltrow have. I don't know about Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> One of those kids is not like the other. <laughs> There you go. I'm obviously reading okay. this question for the first time. Anyhow, my question is, why do you think we're not seeing actors coming up with their coming up who are characters in their own right? Was Heath Ledger the last we saw? Because I who? think it became like a whole thing. Uh, this whole one trick pony mentality. And I think mm -hmm. I think a lot of uh, film companies are really scared of being like, oh, well, this is going to be the same film we've seen 15 times because this character plays this character. It's like, you know, Nicolas Cage as Nicolas Cage in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So so I don't actually think that Heath Ledger is the last actor to have done this. Um, I guess depending on what you describe as an actor, but um, there's someone who's doing it very successfully, actually, who, who always brings an element of themselves into every role that they play and that's Dwayne the Rock Johnson yeah yeah and you know look there's older actors as well like Robert Downey Jr Johnny Depp but I really yes. think that you're right that there is it's twofold number one it's very studios are not building stars like they used to they are building properties yes right very much so so it's cheaper to option Captain America and cast Chris Evans, whom you don't know, to be Captain America. Now, he might become a guy, but 
he didn't have to be. Uh, I do think, however, another actor who's maybe promising to be this kind of person is like Chris Hemsworth. Yes. He always kind of brings a sensibility to his roles. But largely, I think why you don't see it as often is because they just aren't building stars anymore. A lot of a lot of actors that are cast, except for the ones you've known for like a few decades, tend to feel somewhat interchangeable. And the other thing is, you know, some actors are characters. Yeah. Nick Cage, I'd imagine in real life, is a character. Joe Pesci, Joe, Joe Pesci in, in real life is probably a character. Yes. Johnny Depp in real life is probably a character. There is a whole couple of generations of, of actors who they themselves are just fucking left of center. You know, they're just a little askew. They beat to their, their they march to their, the beat of their own drum. And um, you may just be seeing a lot less of that because the act, the younger actors that Hollywood tends to pick up, have a look, have a vibe interchangeable kind of boring people who either aren't allowed to bring their personality into the role, don't know how to bring their personality into the role, don't have the stroke or don't have the stroke to pull their own personality into the role. Right. If you're a young actor coming up, Hey, who are you? You're in a Marvel film. You're, you're just, you know, you've got your, you might be a good actor, but you're not an actor who can pull the strings you know, Al Pacino can come in and he could dictate or Chris Walken can come in and they could dictate their performance. Younger actors may not feel empowered to do that. They may not have um, the sensibility to do that. I, I don't know exactly, but I don't think it's forever lost. I just feel like, um, you know, I think uh, sort of a common theme in a lot of these questions or some of the questions anyway is what the industry will look like post-COVID. And I would like to believe that one of the things that comes up post COVID is more mid level, mid budget, you know, mid tier, mid budget, mid budget tiered films that um, where you could take more risk. And if you could take more risk, then some of these actors can allow their personalities to come out. Like maybe they're not now. I really hope so, that happens. I really want to see a lot of films taking more risk because right now we're seeing a lot of stuff that's like fits into a lot of. A lot of film holes, so to speak. I want to see, I want to see something else different come out of this, maybe. Well, that, there's exceptions, but you got to search them. You know, I always say, yeah, that's right. People who get mad at Hollywood reboots, Hollywood make remakes, Hollywood mining old properties from the '80s. Like, there are great films out there. Parasite was a fantastic yes. film. Uh, Mandy was a fantastic film. Tusk was a fantastic film. There's a lot of super original ideas that are implemented and come out in film that are fantastic. I love Tusk. I know you do. I will die. This is a hill. This is the hill that I am going to die on because name another film that interesting that's come out in the last 20 years. Human Centipede. That movie sucked ass. Literally and figuratively. And that's why it's amazing. And on that note, thank you guys for listening Hope you guys have enjoyed our guest host today. Like I said, we're working on something pretty interesting for next week. Hopefully I can bring that together and make that happen. I will definitely promote it if it does. But, uh, you know, give this film a score to settle, a.k.a. Old Man, which I think is a better title. Give it a shot if you're in, so inclined. And if not, hopefully we've saved you, saved you four bucks and you can use that to buy some of our Grindhouse Blend Krampus Blend coffee. 
Till next time, this has been Dave and our guest host with the most, Ophelia. Thank you for listening to the Grindhouse podcast. Adios. Should I do an outro? Yeah, just do it live. Fuck it, we'll do it live. Do it live. You're listening to the Grindhouse podcast on the Sleepy Daddy Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. And YouTube. Bye. See you guys. Adios. Bye. 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 Bye.